Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking once again with Dr. Rani Lil-Anyam, and Rani takes us through her chapter two of the Course Health book, and the chapter is titled Dispositions and the Unique Patient. We talk about what constitutes medical uniqueness, and we compare this view with the views of the patients adopted by evidence-based medicine and other theories of person-centred healthcare. We once again talk about philosophy and practice, and why we need to think about philosophy when addressing clinical concerns. And in doing so, we really touch on the foundational views of causation, which are part of the EBM paradigm. And we talk about dispositionalism as a better philosophical framework for person-centered healthcare. We also touch on the subjectivity, which is inherent in clinical practice and inherent in our research methods, no matter how objective we pretend these methods to be. Finally, Rani talks us through the practical implications and what does dispositionalism mean for the clinician? As I go through these conversations with different authors of the Course Health book, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me the limitations and the redundancies associated with not just traditional evidence-based medicine, but actually the core research methods and the premises of those research methods of which the EBM paradigm rests. So I think taking these first six episodes as a single episode, it will become more obvious how adopting a complex and context-sensitive view of causation relates to real-world clinical practice. So once again, I bring you Dr. Rani Lil-Anyam. Rani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we're going to talk about the second chapter of the book and it's titled Dispositions and the Unique Patient. And so I wonder if you could start by telling us, you know, why the unique patient? What is meant by uh, the unique patient and I suppose also medical uniqueness? Yeah, we wanted to start with the unique patient uh, because it's also in the title of the book. And uh, it's where we think that the dispositionalist approach has something to offer that is not in uh, most other approaches to, to causation. And it is in contrast to the evidence-based framework that we are addressing in the book. So even though we are actually promoting a different way of thinking about uh, this causality, complexity, and evidence you know, in health sciences, we, we are also contrasting it continuously throughout with the current frame of thinking. And uh, I mean, this evidence-based framework, it has been, uh, it has been growing now. I mean, it's, it's not like it's losing a grip, but, but more critical voices are coming because uh, in evidence-based medicine, it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of focus on something that is like the normal patient, the average patient, or most patients. And decisions about individual unique patients have to be made based on evidence from large-scale population studies. And, and 
it is a tension then between you know what you can find out about other people maybe not so much information about a lot of people compared to what you meet in the clinic which is a complex patient with uh, history and with a lot of uh, uniqueness so so how do you go from the information that you have about other people to saying what would work best for this person and so your notions of or theories of person-centered care or patient-centered care they've been floating around for a few decades now and and i just wondered how those alternative views relate to i suppose medical uniqueness and i i'm going to answer the question before i've actually asked it but i imagine that you you situation person-centered care in relation to causation is quite novel yeah, so uh, Stephen Montford and I, uh, we wrote a book in uh, 2011 uh, called Getting Causes from Powers, where uh, we wanted to present uh, a theory of causation that was different from David Hume's classical theory, where uh, a cause is thought of as something that is a relation between two observable events, you know, and where it's a lot of focus on same cause, same effect. And we thought, this this framework for causation that Hume promotes, it's, uh, well, first of all, this same cause, same effect. I mean, it's everywhere. But the same cause, same effect, it's something that you would see if you did exactly the same thing again and again and again in exactly the same context. The question is when that actually happens in reality. Because even David Hume said that it should be the same cause, gives the same effect under the same conditions. But first of all, when you deal with patients, they are never the same. But we started from the perspective of biology. I mean, in biology, nothing is ever the same. It's not like uh, out in nature, you will find ever the same context repeated twice. So this concept of causation, it works really well uh, in the classical way of thinking about science, which is theoretical physics. And in theoretical physics, you, you deal with models. You know, you can have a model and you can say that or stipulate that you only have two or three causally relevant factors, and then you can predict with certainty what's going to happen. And of course, we know that once you take that out of the model and, and, and try to perform a real life experiment in the classroom or whatever, things can go wrong because it, you might not have these ideal conditions. Uh, but it has really influenced the scientific methodology a lot. So I think all this talk about replicability, reproducibility, you want to see if it's properly scientific. You want to see the same kind of outcomes across different contexts and different trials. So if you have one randomized control trials, for instance, where you test out an, a medical intervention, and it seems to have an effect, you still want to see that happening in other studies as well. You, you don't, if it happened only in this study, then maybe it was a coincidence. And, and this is why David Hume says you need to have repetitions uh, because ideally each time you did the same, it should be the same. But if you have a group of people and you give them an intervention and you might give an, <clears throat> you might get an average result that it worked for 30% or 60% or but next time you do a clinical study you will have other people so why should the percentage be exactly the same so 
that's why we wanted to have a theory of causation that where we could talk about causation like we do in the everyday life. We say, oh, this was caused, this was caused, but without assuming that you have an ideal model uh, or a closed system or perfect overview over the costly relevant factors. We actually do say that causation happens, even if it happens only once. So, so this is where we think you need to really bring in the philosophy, because one thing is that we have many ways to talk about causation in our everyday life and even in science. But the scientific methodology doesn't seem to change so easily. So we wanted to say that if you want to change the way things are done and in evidence-based medicine, you know, you have to, you have to use the average uh, results on the unique patient. So, so how do you change that? Well, you cannot change that if all of the science is following a certain notion of causation where that's the only thing that you can do. And, and we want to say that, well, evidence-based medicine, it is actually the perfect way of doing it within a certain philosophical framework. But if you think that, you, that this is a problem, like, okay, is this representative for my patient? Um, or is my patient a completely different one from those in the clinical trials? Because if so, that treatment is not going to work for my patient just because it worked for mm. a majority or, you know. So if you need to have a more person-centered approach that is more concerned and tailored around an individual patient and adapt the treatment to who that patient is, you need to have a different concept. Because if you have this human concept where the same cause gives the same effect, under the same conditions. I mean, what you have to find is this person-centered approach will have to be like your subpopulation-centered mm. approach. <laughs> you know, so which population does my patient belong to? Is it uh, is it males uh, in their thirties uh, with high income and uh, uh, ethnical ethnically uh, Asian? Mm. <laughs> you know. Mm, that doesn't sound very person-centered, <laughs> but but this is this is the kind of things you can get from population studies, and that's what the interesting tension between that generalizability, which things like randomized control trials look to achieve, that external validity, but then in real-world clinical practice, where clinicians aren't seeing the average patient, they're seeing the individuals, and so. It, I, and it might come down, or I think perhaps you can say how those assumptions about causation, which evidence-based medicine traditionally has, those ontological assumptions around causation, and how the cause health ontological view of causation differs, because they're they're significantly different, or they're profoundly different. I'm not quite sure what the adjective is, but they're they're different views of causation. Yeah. So. Um... So, of course, uh, Hume, uh, he started from a very particular uh, philosophical perspective, which is not the ontological about how the world is. He didn't want to know what actually is causation. He wanted to know empirically, what can we observe? What do we have observable evidence for? That was all he cared about because he was an empiricist. And a strict empiricist says that you can only know for certain what you can observe through your senses. And if you take that test to causation, 
than all we can really observe about the causal relation. It's not the relation itself, because that one is invisible. You know, what you can observe is stuff like, um, okay, so when you see married men live longer, <laughs> or that uh, high income uh, seems to give better health, you know, or smoking causes cancer. What he says is that you can see you can see someone, you can see a population that smokes and you can see a population that gets cancer. You can see a population being married and you can see a population that uh, lives longer. But what you cannot observe is whether there's a causal link. So is there something intrinsic going on that is a change? Is there, a, is there an ongoing process? He didn't think of causation as an ongoing process of change. So we wanted to start from that perspective instead, which is an ontological one. So it's like, okay, I don't care if we can actually observe the process. But if we're going to conceptually say that uh, smoking causes cancer, it must be something that happens within your body when you smoke <laughs> that could lead to the cancer. You know, it cannot just be a statistical fact. And the same thing about high income and better health. So if you get higher income, you know, you change your job. If we think that that's going to change your health, it must mean that that higher income made you change something in your lifestyle that then affected your health. Maybe you moved out of the city to the countryside. Maybe, uh, you know, you started working less because you had more money, so you didn't stress so much. You know, maybe you started buying more healthy food because it's actually more expensive. You know, so if you didn't do these kinds of things, it would be a miracle from an ontological perspective, that this could affect your health. So if something affects anything, which is a costly, you know, which is a causal claim, it, it would have to be because something within you, and we say it's the dispositional properties, it, it's something in you about your properties that change because of the properties of something else. So the money, it has the causal power mm. of disposition to buy you stuff, you know, that you didn't have before. And but you have to exercise that power and actually go out and buy the things that or join a gym in Norway. It's quite expensive to join a gym, you know, and if you want to buy organic food, all of this costs money. And uh, but you also have to follow up. You have to go to the gym. You cannot just say <laughs> that, oh, buying. A... <laughs> Such a shame, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame. So you get the membership and uh, suddenly your health is improved. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to actually do the work. Can't you develop a theory causation when that does happen? <laughs> uh, isn't that the human way, though? It's the evidence-based way, isn't it? Because they just say that if you move to another part of town, your health, uh, you know, your, your, all your risk factors are going to improve. You know, so suddenly you won't get diabetes, you won't get heart uh, disease. But we all know that moving to another postcode is not actually intrinsically costly relevant. It doesn't change anything in you um, necessarily, unless you have a causal story to tell. You know, maybe you moved closer to the park and away from the factory. Maybe they had clean water in the tap. <laughs> Once you know which kind of things actually influences your health, that's when you know about causation. Looking at all these uh, statistical facts, they don't give you the relation. So, so from this dispositionalist perspective, we're interested in what kind of changes are happening within. But that also means that you have to understand 
not only which two factors are causally related, potentially, like uh, uh, being married and living longer, but you have to understand what exactly is it about being married that changes your lifestyle to change your health so that you will live longer. I mean, it's not like your wife is going to defend you against uh, uh, natural disasters, for instance, and that's why you live longer. But it could be. Could be. I mean, it could be. So, but I mean, it could be a range of properties. Is that right? Associated with that factor. So there's a range of things which might come with being married. Exactly. Just like moving to a certain postcode, and it's about trying to get to know the person to understand which of those are they dispositions or properties. Yeah, I mean, dispositions are properties. It's a certain type of properties. So, so with that said, so knowing that, how does why or why is it that dis positionism is a, a maybe a better philosophical framework for person-centered healthcare. Yeah, so when we talk about uh, dispositions you know when we say that causes are dispositions we say that dispositions they are certain properties that uh, give you causal powers. So something can be fragile meaning that it can break, something can be explosive meaning that it can explode. Someone can be fertile, meaning that they can get pregnant uh, or have a baby, if you're a guy. <laughs> and, uh, and what we're saying is that causation happens when such dispositions manifest themselves. Uh, and Hume, of course, he would say only the manifestation exists. So you can have a baby. Okay, so you have to look at what stimulated that to happen. Uh, something can break and you can think, okay, what happened when something broke, was it that you hit uh, hit the glass with a hammer? So those are the causally relevant information types of information. But from a dispositionalist perspective, it's not only about whether you hit something with a hammer and it breaks. It's also about whether it was something there that could break under such impact. Uh, because I can hit a lot of things with the hammer and some things break and some things don't break. Um, so in order to predict uh, which effect you're going to get from the intervention, you need to understand the properties that are already there that interacts with the intervention. So we take this over to the to the medical context and we say, if you want to know what a kind of treatment can do for your patient, you first need to understand what type of patient do you have. Because different people respond differently to, to, uh, to even the same intervention. So I, I would actually say that an intervention could be a treatment for one person, but be really harmful, so not a cure at all for another person. So, so if you just give the same to everyone, assuming that they're in the same subgroup where you know it's going to be safe and effective, you, you might actually end up harming some, uh, some patients. And uh, I think this is not, this is not a very rare <laughs> situation either. There are so many reports of uh, untargeted, you know, side effects from medical treatments, and and, and you have all these uh, patient damage compensations uh, processes going on, you know, where people have been harmed. But but the point is that from a perspective of the evidence based approach, you you're home free if you actually gave the treatment that is in average the best. But from a person centered perspective the best treatment should be what is best for your patient. And, and the dispositional uh, theory of causation allows you to actually explain why 
two contexts that are different will get different types of effects. Because uh, we, we have a theory where we say that all causation that happens is complex. It happens by what we call mutual manifestation partnerships. So for instance, the most simple example, we know that a woman can be fertile, but she needs a manifestation partner to become pregnant. So we know about that. And you need to have the right background conditions for the pregnancies to happen with the hormones and uh, whatever the uterus, you know, it has to be the right stage in life. And there is an ongoing process where you need new dispositional properties at, the, at all times. So these are all, you know, dispositionalist theories. These are all dispositional properties that are needed for the causal process to go on. And so if we if we pick out one part of this causal process, for instance, the guy and the sperm, and we say, oh, that was the cause, and the woman was the background conditions, you know, it doesn't really mm. tell the full causal story. And even worse, if you take away the woman with everything she adds, and you say, well, it's only this trigger that is the cause, and then, ooh, nine months later, a baby, uh, you know, then you have these two observables. But from a dispositionalist perspective, the whole causal process could in principle be observable because there is a process of change that is going on throughout. But when you do a statistical empirical study, you, you only test an early stage of the process and the later stage of the process, but you don't record or follow what happens along the way. While in a cohort study, for instance, you would be able to follow a kind of change from a dispositionalist perspective, seeing the kinds of things that would impact. But, but the problem is that from a human model, this wouldn't count in the same way as causal evidence, because different things would happen to different individuals, depending on what different things they did. And, and that's why this, this focus on the same and the same, it, it, it really, it takes away most of the causally relevant story. And we always think that in order to know what something actually does, what causal role it plays, you have to isolate it from everything else. But I mean, if you take, uh, you know, some sperm and you put it on the table, sorry about that, then it's not going to make anyone pregnant. It, it, so what something does in isolation is not at all what it does in its natural context. So if we just dismiss the natural context as not costly relevant evidence. Uh, it's it's a flawed story, and I and I and I really think this uh, this idea of thinking of the treatment as something that you can study in isolation by randomizing or by randomization. I I think we start to pretend that the treatment is effective on its own and independently of who it's interacting with. And that's when it becomes dangerous because then you have to think of things like numbers needed to treat or numbers needed to harm. Oh, no, it's perfectly safe. You know, only one in 10,000 get this side effect. Well, if it happens to you, it, there might have been something they could have checked before to see whether you had a, a bigger chance of getting the side effect. Or if they say, oh, yeah, you need to give this drug to 20 people for one of them to be uh, cured by it. Well, then you have 19 people who are uh, actually not getting an effect because they are not appropriate mutual manifestation partners for the treatment. Because the treatment is going to interact with certain properties in you, for instance, if you have a, a chemical, it will need a receptor in you 
And if you don't have that receptor, uh, well, you're, you're not going to get any benefit from the treatment. And that's why we're treating a lot of people uh, in ways that are not really working for those individuals. So from a dispositionalist perspective, you have to start from the unique situation and find out as much as you can about the costly relevant dispositions that are going to be involved. So in terms of the research, which is valued by the traditional evidence-based model, typically randomized controlled trials, which are often decontextual and monocausal, they, they reduce and isolate things down. What is the alternative? Is it a series, you know, what is the alternative approach? Just a series of anecdotes or um, how to build in the complexity and the variance and heterogeneity into into the stu- the methods that we have or the study designs that we have. I think really there's if you start from the perspective that this person is unique and they need something that is adapted to them, you know, then the individual variation is something that you would take as a default instead of thinking, is this patient representative for the relevant subgroup? You know which would give you a standardized uh, approach. And I mean, that subgroup is not going to be very specific either. It's going to be stuff like gender and uh, and age and uh, maybe a diagnosis. So if you, if you start from this perspective, then it shows you will need to take, for instance, patient narratives seriously. You would want to ask the patient about their medical history and about their diet and exercise and if they have other illnesses, if, they have, if they're using other drugs before you give them a drug or if they're doing other types of exercise, if it hurts when they do this and this. So you, you would want to know as much as you can, but you also need to know as much as you can about your treatment. If you don't know anything about how your intervention works, only that it statistically it brings out the the targeted effect in so and so many people who take it, then if you know that little, you don't really know how it's going to interact with your patient. But if you know the causal mechanisms of your intervention, what exactly it's doing. So when you when you do this exercise, it sets, uh, you know, it, it uh, will soften up this part or it will do strengthen this part. And you know why it's doing that, you know, so you know how it works and you know why it does it that would tell you that you need to have this kind of theoretical insights you know and and it's not so weird anyway it's it's what you learn in school so when you take your education you learn a lot about the how and the why if all you learned was about the statistics of what has turned out to work in the past <laughs> on on which populations i mean then you didn't need to then you only needed your computer. You wouldn't actually have to have your education. So from the dispositionalist perspective, understanding the theory and the theories of mechanisms, that's crucial because that's going to tell you what what is the costly relevant uh, information that you get from a patient narrative. I mean, if you understand as an osteopath, if you understand how muscles work and uh, and how you're not going to ask people about the you know the color of their parents' eyes uh, because it's not going to and you're not going to let them tell you whatever whatever you're you're going to listen to certain things so that kind of expertise 
and the clinical experience that you have, you know, of trial and failure in the past, <laughs> you know, and things that could actually influence and affect and make something worse, make something better. Those kinds of, of, um, of knowledge is much more important than knowing how often something happens. I mean, knowing how often something happens gives you some kind of idea of a possible risk or a possible success in general of a treatment in the studied population. But it doesn't really give you the, the costly, crucial information that you need to give the safe and effective treatment to your uh, to your own patient. And so is it is the are the implications both a change in how we do research so we can build in some of this complexity into our research studies? And or so so currently as a clinician, there is there a set of evidence out there on PubMed which which have assumptions around causation. Is it the case that they're useless to me? Because even the mechanisms around treatment effects or or um, yeah, the, the mechanisms of treatments or interventions, the assumptions that you're criticizing are still built into those studies. So if I want to so you said about how muscles work, for example, even my understanding the mechanistic the empirical evidence around how, I don't know, exercise affects muscular strength or changes in muscular structure, they have the same problems, right? I mean, there, there are problems with even how those studies were carried out in, in so yeah, much so as they're reducing on... down. Yeah, I mean, they're, reduced, they're, they're looking at things under a microscope. So is it the case that that's sort of, all of it's useless to me? Uh, we need to start from scratch with a new set of, a, a, a new a new body of uh, literature or as a clinician i can implement dispositionalist theory based on the evidence which is available to me i think it's um it's true what you say that this human notion of causation is going to be built into all evidence that is out there and so some mechanisms are simply found by looking at regularities of of events and but I still think that it should be possible to think of causal evidence in different ways so you can interpret it differently. So you can you can be more critical of the kind of evidence that you look at. You can be more critical and thinking, well, so here it says that this is the mechanism, but do they just mean that this is what most likely happens <laughs> you know when you do this and this uh, or is it is there a theoretical explanation for or could there be uh, a plausible mechanism so so here you come back to the bradford hill criteria you know there are many different symptoms of causation and and from a dispositionalist perspective there would be many different symptoms of causation and no directly observable feature that you could just pin down and say oh there's the disposition right there so Elena, Rocca, and I, we, we recently wrote a paper where we, where we argued that for dispositionalist perspective, uh, if you want to, for instance, have a hypothesis of an intrinsic disposition, you, you need to do more qualitative research. And I think so far, qualitative research has not really been taken seriously as costly relevant. It's always been quantitative. And this is something that we come back to in the book in later chapters as well. But it's it's something that goes uh, throughout 
in the book because there is this tension in the in the human versus the dispositions approach and i would say in the person centered versus the evidence based pr- framework as well where well is really information about the patient about one single case could that be costly relevant or is it just an anecdote and i think what is really damaging in in medicine and healthcare is that if someone tells you that something happened to them and you say no i never heard of that before uh, i don't think that can be the cause that's that's the worst because if you say i cannot count what you're saying as causal evidence or potential causal evidence until i hear it from enough other people then no one is actually being heard because and this is what happens in in reporting of side effects you know you go to your doctor or you go to the pharmacy and you say oh i get really dizzy from this drug and they say nah i never heard of that it, it must be something else are you sure that you're not you know ill or uh, it cannot be this drug but actually ontologically if something happens to you then it happens to you independently of whether it would ever happen to someone else but david hume because he was such a strict empiricist and said we need repetitions he said that if for instance the creation of the universe happened only once so if god for instance created the world only once he didn't cause it to happen because for that to be the case he would have had to do the same things many times uh, and only then could we observe causation but from an ontological perspective to create creation that itself is a causal verb it's like you produce <laughs> something and producing is also also a causal verb uh to pressure to push we influence we prevent we interfere all of these say suggest that there is something intrinsic going on that moves something to happen uh and so i just think this not taking the individual seriously as causal potential information i think that's the worst and i think also what dispositionism does is it elevates the role of clinical judgment on the part of the the clinician or or expertise and experience which typically gets um what's the word well it gets downplayed or even dismissed (laughs) Yeah, kind of bashed down by by evidence and says that that's super serious. Like you said, I mean, you were saying it on the part of the, the patient reporting a, a, an event or a side effect, but likewise, a clinician reports an experience in their practice, and if it if it's not manifested or, or displayed in the evidence, then it didn't really happen. No. I mean, it's, the evidence is the thing which 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 is the arbiter of, of, of reality or, or events. Yeah, so Roger Carey, he has he has some good points about this uh, in his chapter. He's, he's written a chapter in part two, and and he says he started out being quite uh, positive to all these evidence based approaches, but but then he was supposed to pick out uh, patients to uh, participate in the clinical study, and they were all dismissed. They were excluded because they were too special. And he said, well, if if these patients are not part of the clinical studies because they're not they're not like those patients should be, then then why should I trust the evidence as relevant for my patients once the results are out? Because obviously the the studied population and the treated populations are two completely different, <laughs> different types of groups. 
So, and, and this clinical judgment, when you are there, you are the only one except from the patient with the information. So the patient is, they know a lot, but maybe they don't know how it's, it's relevant because they, they lack the expertise, but they will know a lot of things about how things affect them, you know, because they know it's it firsthand. Like, no, actually, I get really dizzy from those pills. Don't give me those. Or no, actually, my pains get worse when I do those exercises. I don't want to do them. And if you look at the statistics and you say, no, no, you shouldn't do them because this is really, really good. And, and finally, what do we, what do you say, what's the, the risk? Is, is, is there a risk of being too subjective or relying too much or we can be wrong quite often right so so human intuition we often we have confirmation bias we make things fit you know preconceived notions of of reality and how we want them to be and i just wonder that making a case for single cases expert judgment and experience the person's narrative is there a risk of of going down a kind of slippery slope of whatever the clinician thinks or whatever the patient says is 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 true and there isn't some objective kind of reality which checks some of our our intuitions and experiences in the form of trials or you know published evidence well i think uh, the biases are always going to be there there are biases in the trials of this kind of normal uh, healthy enough patient and there will be bias about causation in all the scientific methods, you know, and there will be uh, mm. biases about theories and biases about subpopulations. And of course, every person and clinician and the patient will have their biases. Mm. But uh, the dispositions, they are, they are not thought to be subjective, like the fragility of the glass is an objective thing. And the mechanisms of things breaking when, you know, you have an impact on something hard like a hammer, uh, they are objective. So the causal mechanisms themselves, I mean, it's something that you have to always continue studying because you might know something about a general mechanism and it might be objectively true given <laughs> that the theory is correct. But <laughs> from the perspective of dispositionalism, because every causal situation is complex. There's no limit to how much you need to know to be fully informed. So uncertainty and lack of knowledge is yeah. always going to yeah. be there. So for instance, you you know, I, I like to talk about this uh, flicking of the light switch. So you flick the light switch and the lamp comes on. And you can do that many, many times. And you can even say in the end, well, this is mechanism. But unless you know something about how that light flick is connected to the lamp and what's uh, and what's actually going on as a causal story there you wouldn't be able to predict when the lamp wouldn't come out so what you would have to do is just wait for it to fail and then start studying the context and if you want to really understand the mechanism this is what you should do you should look at the cases of failure so you should keep searching for when it doesn't happen and instead of saying well the lamp cannot come on every time I click the switch. That's just too much to ask. I'm just going to call this a non-responder. Instead, what you should do is check the context. Okay, so it doesn't work when this doesn't, when the plug is not in the socket or when uh, the lamp bulb is black or when the circuit has blown. Or So this is when you learn. 
And that's the same about, so you might know that the paracetamol removes uh, some pain, like a headache, but if you don't know what kind of things could prevent it, interfere with it, make it worse, or just mean that closely affect it in any way, then you haven't really understood the mechanism on a very deep level. You have a surface understanding, but not something that could give you uh, a good, not something that can guide your decision about safe treatment. Yeah. But, so I get the, the dispositions are there, whether or not we notice them, but it still takes, I guess the subjectivity comes into effect when it requires people to notice them so that I might walk into the room and not notice the light switch there. So ontologically, to me, there is no light switch, right? So I guess that what I meant in, in terms of the, the subjectivity to the clinician, which you're quite right, it's, it's inherent in clinical practice. And, and as you said, science, science is a human endeavor. It's a subjective thing. But I was just wondering how, whether or not so you and I might see the same patient as clinicians, but notice quite different dispositions within them you might say oh, i think it's that they're overweight and they're smoking and they're lonely i might interact with them and come up with another list of uh, properties and i just wondered is that a, is that a problem i mean is that is that is that that difference you know and you know, with, i'm speaking to samantha in chapter six about guidelines to standardize care and i and this is probably not for for this episode but it's interesting to me that that it might promote variation in care if we're going to elevate clinical judgment and subjectivity, which is to some extent opposite of the original EBM endeavor, which is to standardize care. Yeah, and I think this standardization is something that course health is really objecting to. Because if you if you say same course gives same effect in the same conditions, that's okay. But if you say same course gives extremely different <laughs> extremely different effects if you have different contexts. I mean, if we start from the perspective that all patients are different, then why should we standardize? The only reason to standardize is because we think that what is fair, so if you want to have fair and equal treatment, then everyone should give, get the same. I mean, that's a bit like what's happening in schools with standardized tests. Everyone who is six-year-old should know this, this, and this, and understand this, this, and that. And everyone who is eight, instead of thinking, where is this child at this stage in their development? And how does this child learn in the best way? Uh, should they learn in the way that is statistically average, uh, you know, giving the best grades? Because this is the pressure now. Yeah. And and. What is interesting about this standardization is that it's extremely easy to manage because you don't have to know shit to decide what should be done. And because you can look at the results for yourself, you can see this school is doing so much better than your school. If only you did it in exactly the same way as they did, you would be doing so much better. And then if you're in that school, you might say, no, actually, you cannot compare us to that school. Uh, this is an entirely different situation, but from a management point of view, where you don't necessarily need judgment, you you have your statistics. But if you want to give the best care and think about who is this person and who am I giving care to, then the most fair thing to do is to treat people differently. If they are different, 
we we don't go around giving peanuts to people with peanut allergy just because we gave it to the other kids because mm-hmm. that would be fair. I mean, I'm sure this kid also liked to have some peanuts, but if it's going to kill them, no, no. <laughs> well, of course, you would just say that they belong to the subgroup of people with peanut allergies that shouldn't get it, but that is dependent on the clinical trials picking up on it. Because you couldn't just have a mechanistic story because the mechanism could be wrong, so you wouldn't trust it from an empiricist point of view. So if you say, no, I need to see the data, then you need to first kill some kids. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Because the evidence, that's the same now with masks and and COVID. In Norway, they still don't recommend the masks because uh, we have the National Public Health Institute and they want to see evidence and they want to see then randomized controlled trials. And you don't, I mean, a randomized controlled trial is not going to pick up on. It. All it's going to check is whether or not a population uh, uses masks and how many people get uh, infected or die. But you don't, you don't pick up which other mechanisms are, are in, uh, you know, involved in actual producing, in the actual production. So, so this mechanistic uh, evidence is really... <laughs> It's, it's really seen as some, something problematic and, as you say, something that is potentially biased. But the bias of the inclusion and exclusion criteria and of these statistical approaches and placebos, and they are there as well. Yeah. So perhaps you could summarise, Ronnie, some of the practical implications for clinicians. How does the philosophical foundations matter to clinical practice? Yeah, I think we list some some things towards the end of this chapter, and it's it's about uh, this n equals one. So you always start from the unique patient, and this comes from the idea that causation happens in the particular case and not in the repetition of a relation. And you would expect to have individual variations because causation is extremely context sensitive. And you should always expect that causation is complex. It's never just one thing causing something. There will be a whole range of things that would possibly affect both whether a treatment works or whether people get sick. And that you should actually care about your expertise, both both the theoretical expertise that you get through your education and, and throughout, and the expertise that you get from your clinical experience. And you should always know what is the mutual manifestation partner for this treatment. And is it an appropriate partner for that particular treatment? Or is there one that could be better? So the more you know about your patient in the relevant sense, the better equipped you are to make good clinical decisions. Ronnie, thank you for taking us through chapter two. And I look forward to speaking with you in future episodes. Thank you. You will be hearing from me and Elena shortly. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.